space is really not for the faint of heart, that this is sort of hard and squared. The moon will need its own GPS system. You're on the lunar servers, you want to know where you are. Same thing as on the Earth. You want to be able to just pull up, you know, Google Maps. <laughs> Navigate back to your lunar base. So people used to talk about the other three billion that don't have access to the internet when, you know, the internet was first really taking off. Now it's the other four billion. The problem actually got worse. You know, we just figured, okay, there's got to be a way to do this better. It's like when you see that magnitude of opportunity and no one is doing it, you know, you just got to go and figure out why no one else is doing it. One thing we love to talk about here on the A16Z podcast is exponential trends. And one such trend that is approaching exponential is the price of shipping a kilogram to orbit. Significant declines in cost have resulted in an absolute renaissance of activity. In fact, 2022 was a record year for the space sector, with 186 successful rocket launches. That was 41 more than 2021. So what are all these rockets bringing to orbit? And who is on the other side of that market? What entities, public or private, are buying the capabilities up there? And how might this increasingly diverse computing shell around the Earth evolve? If you know anything about exponential trends, then the idea of mining asteroids or manufacturing drugs in space actually no longer sounds crazy. And that is why we bring you this mini-series on the satellite economy, together with the founders of two companies trying to participate, Astronus and Stoke Space. Here in part one, John Gedmark from Astronus joins us after a few decades in the industry, from forming the Commercial Space Flight Federation in 2006 to Astronus's very own launch in May. And as John now builds his own satellites, he reflects on the transition from the government shuttle era, where satellites were literally the size of school buses and lasted for decades, to something much different. Here, we discuss why Astronus is tackling GEO instead of LEO, what government and non-government buyers are looking for, and how competition and cost are shaping up. Astronus, by the way, is trying to bring connectivity to the mind-boggling 4 billion people that still do not have internet access. And they're doing that by partnering with customers, ranging from Alaska's Pacific Data Port to a Peruvian telecommunications provider, and also an in-flight connectivity company. So naturally, I had to ask why in-flight Wi-Fi is so bad, so make sure you tune in for that. But also, be sure to join us for part two, where we discuss the unique engineering challenge of reusable rockets. All right, prepare for liftoff. As a reminder, the content here is for informational purposes only. Should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. So you've been in space for a while. I think, what was it, in 2006, you helped found the Commercial Space Flight Federation. Why don't we start there? What caused you to want to be a part of that way back then? Like, what did you see at the time? Oh, sure. I mean, that was back when this new industry was just getting off the ground, right? Yeah. People were figuring out that they could 
with private dollars go and start a new space company and actually do something useful with sort of a, mm -hmm. you know, a non giant government blank check, you know, yeah. amount of money. So I, I wanted to find, you know, basically the place where the action was happening. And I was very lucky. I was pretty fresh out of school and I started as an intern at the XPRIZE Foundation. And so, you know, XPRIZE at the time, it's this nonprofit organization mm -hmm. that develops these prizes for technological breakthroughs. Yeah. And, you know, it's just this uh, phenomenal organization. At the time, the big prize was this $10 million prize mm -hmm. for a private company to launch people into space. Yeah. And we ended up winning that. Then that technology ended up becoming what is now Virgin Galactic still mm -hmm. today, right? So, like, that really kicked off this new wave of activity in the, in the space industry. And yeah, I was very lucky to just be there and be a part of it and be right in the middle of it. So one of the projects that I worked on was this new industry group, the Commercial Space Flight Federation, and that you have these industry groups that try to decide as an industry, what are the important policies? What are things we want? You know, whether it's industry standards that cut across, you know, all these companies or it's public policy and all the organizations at the time were basically run by the major aerospace and defense companies, mm -hmm. right? So really the basic idea was just like, let's have our own organization, you know, no big defense contractors allowed and figure out what policies make the most sense for this new emerging set of companies. New world, right? Yes. I mean, maybe you can speak to that transition because really for a few decades, it really was the government that was the primary home. And you also mentioned some of these large contractors, but those were the entities driving space forward, right? And now in 2023, things look pretty different. We've gone from the shuttle model to something with a lot more startups, a lot more grittiness, innovation, probably more failures along the way. But also it's just a totally different environment that went from the government now also to something, you know, these private companies. It really is. I mean, there were basically three eras of space flight, right? There was the initial... Apollo era, where we were in, it was this massive, almost monolithic government program, and everything was huge and epic in scale by design, because we were trying to compete against the Soviet Union and show that, you know, we can do things better and faster and, you know, land a person on the moon before they could. Then we entered into this era in the 80s, basically, with the space shuttle and with a lot of other, uh, a lot of other space programs, defense programs where these things got very entrenched with these cost plus contracts. Yes. And the major aerospace and defense contractors were basically able to lock in, you know, these programs at a cost of billions of dollars and they were just not going anywhere. It was mm -hmm. like, the, you know, the space shuttle flew for almost three decades. And the craziest thing about the space shuttle is that it was basically a government ride to space that was owned and operated by the government, but private companies sometimes had no choice but to fly their satellites up on a space shuttle to get into space. Yeah. And so it'd be like if there was some government-owned and operated fleet of cargo container ships that would take your cargo, mm -hmm. you know, that you wanted from point A to point B. That you, you could take. Yes. There, I mean, so there, there were certainly companies that tried over the course of those decades to come up with new private vehicles. In the 90s, there was, there was actually a huge number of, of startups that tried to do new rockets, basically. Yep. But they were, in effect, competing with this government monopoly. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the conditions were really right until we got 
into the end of that era, which I would demarcate as like the retirement of, of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And that retirement, it took, <laughs> took many years for the retirement to actually happen, but it started with the Columbia disaster. Mm-hmm. And that was finally when people said, okay, you know, we've been flying this thing for almost 25 years. It's time to retire it. And then it took several more years after that. Right. So you really had all these ingredients of number, basically private individuals who had made enough money in the dot-com boom and had this passion for space to go and take a run at it. And then you also had, on the government side, you had the retirement of the special coming up on the horizon as this, basically this huge opportunity that those companies could then step into. Yeah. Were there any other changes that have really brought us to like this, what feels like a golden age of space innovation? Is it like regulatory changes? Is it technological innovation that's unlocked? So the other one was just the technologies that were starting to become available, right? So for small satellites to be possible, you really needed this combination of technologies to all come together, right? One of them was actually just lithium-ion batteries. Yeah. And so the the old satellites used to have lead-acid batteries that were absolutely these massive, massive, heavy heavy things, right? So that leap to lithium-ion batteries, you know, we all know about the benefits of that here on Earth because we have one of those now every device that we carry, but it actually also made a huge deal in us being able to shrink the size of satellites. And then there's also new chips that became available at a lower cost, but it's just Moore's Law in action. Mm-hmm. There were some things that just got to the point where there was enough compute for a low enough price that it made sense. And then also some advances on the propulsion side. So there's really like a whole basket of technologies that started to come together and let companies like one of the first ones was Skybox go and say, hey, we can at actually surprisingly low cost build a small satellite that will do this very useful thing, have a lot of capability in a small package in a way that just, you know, would have never been capable before, before, you know, would have taken a huge satellite the size of a school bus and be able to raise venture capital dollars on that, Mm -hmm. right? And so that was a pretty big change. Can you just kind of help us get a sense of size here. So you said like the old satellites were maybe as big as a school bus. Yes. When we're talking about these smaller satellites, like how big of a difference are we talking about? Yeah. So when we talk about small satellites, you know, it could be anything from a CubeSat, which is like a bread box up to, you know, something the size of a a large home appliance, right? So like a kitchen range or a mini fridge, right? Our satellites at Astronus are a little bit larger than that similar class, you know, what we call microsatellites. The big satellites that historically cost several hundred million dollars each, you know, they are the size of a school bus, if not like a double-decker, you know, oh big red London double-decker bus. Yeah. So it's a huge difference. It's kind of fascinating because it's just as mind-bending to imagine like this massive school bus throttling around orbit. But it's also kind of just as crazy to imagine like a tiny little toaster. <laughs> but you know, on that note, we'll get to the future of the satellite economy and all the different implications, opportunities. Tell us a little bit about why specifically you've chosen to tackle the unique domain and land that you have on these like smaller geostationary orbit satellites. Totally. I wanted to go and, you know, do something really disruptive in space. I mean, I, I knew that there was... And, and there still is just massive amounts of value to be had mm-hmm. in doing things with these new approaches to small satellites. The thing about GEO and some of these other higher orbits is they are hard, you know, they're, they're hard to operate in and they're harder to get to. 
So it makes sense that when all those different technologies came together that allowed people to build small satellites really for the first time, that they would start in, in low Earth orbit in LEO, right? Mm -hmm. That perfectly makes sense. But historically, GEO is actually the most valuable orbit. Okay. That is where the bulk of money has been spent to put satellites into orbit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to know the exact numbers because a lot of it is classified. So yes. these are like multiple billions of dollars per satellite, I for see. some of these classified satellites, right? It could be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. We, mm -hmm. No one knows the no exact knows. number, but it is a big number that has been spent putting satellites up into GEO. Mm -hmm. And it's been to enormous economic benefit. One of the biggest money makers in the history of all of space was broadcast satellite TV. Mm -hmm. And that was all done with these large, very expensive geo satellites, right? Yeah. So you know there's an enormous amount of value up there in this real estate, which is this belt that surrounds the Earth at geo. And, you know, we just figured, okay, there's got to be a way to do this better. It's like when you see that magnitude of opportunity and no one is doing it, you know, you just got to go and figure out yeah. why no one else is doing it and take a stab at it. But I mean, to that point, there's a lot of people, mm -hmm. when they hear that, they're like, there must be a reason. Like, there must be a reason that this hasn't been tackled or that for several decades, it's only been done this one way where there's just massive satellites, mostly shot up there from the government that stay up there for, what is it, years or for decades as well? Decades, yeah. And yeah. so I guess kind of two questions there. One, why was no one doing this? And probably related to this, like, yeah. tell us a little bit more about the difference between low Earth orbit, which is where a lot of different companies are now launching satellites into, and yeah. GEO, which is where you've chosen to go. Like, what is the difference there? And again, like, why was no one else doing this? Yeah, totally. So the reason no one else was doing it is that it's hard, right? It is up at this high orbit where you're actually right in the thick of what we call the Van Allen radiation belts. So the satellites are just swimming in this sea of radiation all the time. These belts have basically trapped all of this radiation that's come in from space. This is actually why Earth is such a pleasant place to live, because we have this magnetic field that then basically being Earth's deflector shields. Mm -hmm. So that's very beneficial for all of us on Earth. Very convenient, <laughs> thankfully. But it traps any of these particles that are ionized, they get trapped there like a magnetic bottle, mm -hmm. right? And so there's just this soup of radiation and, and these ionized particles that satellites up in these high orbits are just swimming in. Mm -hmm. So it is hard. I mean, it is the radiation effects that we have to design to, and then we have to design all our electronics to qualify them, you know, uh, really make sure that they were going to work in this radiation environment. It's just a massive additional challenge on top of yeah. all the normal challenges of building small satellites and building something that can that will work in space, which is already, you know, that's already hard. Like that, yes. you know, anything in space is really not for the faint of heart, but this is sort of hard squared. Your electronics have to survive all the normal huge temperature ranges. It gets to the most, you know, sort of extremes you can imagine, because when you're in with eclipse. You're in total darkness, and then you're in the deepest cold of space. And then when you're in direct sunlight, mm -hmm. then you get super hot because you don't have, you know, there's atmosphere like we do to sort of buffer that. So you see these huge temperature swings. Yeah. And so your electronics have to not only be able to handle just sitting at one and then sitting at the other, but also these fairly rapid changes between them. Yeah. And then on top of that, 
we have this radiation challenge. But clearly, it just is worth it. Once you're up, any asset you can get up in that high orbit is just becomes this incredibly valuable thing because you can park it over a country or part of the world and provide you know a service with just that one satellite. Yeah. So it ends up being this like structurally very low cost approach to covering an area like an entire country with broadband internet. Each individual satellite is only overhead for about five minutes. Mm -hmm. Then you just do the math of how many satellites need to be up there to have 24-7 coverage. And typically you'll need two or three that you could talk to at any given time because there might be trees in the way, there might be other things you need to build to sort of switch back and forth. So you just need a large number of satellites. Once you get that number of satellites up and are able to sustain them with further launches, then there's a lot of great capability there for sure, right? I mean, we are huge fans of everything that people are doing in low Earth orbit. But there is just clearly this massive value to be had up in these higher orbits and geostationary orbit, so many should go after it. Yeah. <laughs> what gave you the confidence that the technology was there? Because you said space was hard already, and then you know now you're taking it to this you know n squared, let's say. And so, was there any evidence per se <laughs> that you were like, oh, I, I do see how certain technologies are advancing even further? Or what gave you the confidence to say we can actually make this smaller, cheaper, more iterative? I would say there was a little bit maybe of, of hubris there. I would say, <laughs> this is sort of a classic case of we, we, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know when we started coming back in, you know, in 2015. Right? Yeah. In my apartment, myself and my co-founder, Ryan, you know, who's a brilliant engineer, old friend of mine. And, you know, we basically looked at how quickly and, you know, sort of simply could we pull together all the right pieces for, you know, one of these satellites. And certainly at first blush, you could go and go out to this great space economy that we have now of suppliers and, and vendors for building components for different things. I think, you know, what we didn't realize was really the magnitude of that gap between LEO and GEO, especially on the radiation environment. A lot of the components that you could buy were really designed for LEO satellites. Mm -hmm. And once we dug into it, would just not work for us in geo, you know, and that's not through any fault of the vendors. It's just designed for a different thing. So it ended up being a lot more work to find either the right component that we could use, or we ended up having to design our own because there's nothing out there that would work. It definitely appeared a lot easier when we were first starting out than ended up being. So I want to get to who's buying these satellites, the business the economics of all this, but to your point, like you have to some extent made it to the other side. You had your first launch earlier this year, and you have another one coming later this year. You have your dedicated Falcon 9 launch. Like that's pretty awesome. Like, does it feel that way? I just want, you know, as a person who spent <laughs> the last eight years on this with maybe not full certainty that it would work out. How did it feel? Like I watched that YouTube video that will link, you know, in the show notes of, of that first launch and your team watching this go up. And I was like getting emotional during it because I was like, am I? and then I read the comments and other people are like, why am I tearing up? And it's like, I guess it's because it is like quite the feat. Does it feel that way on your end as well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there's a, there's no question. You know, had single rocket go up that has, you know, a satellite on it, especially, you know, you've spent years getting to that point that is, that is something special. The next one will be next level because, you know, with the dedicated launch, be the Astronis logo 
on that rocket, right? Yeah. And just knowing that that rocket is going up just for us. So that's a pretty big, yeah, that's going to be a pretty big moment. Pretty big moment. Okay, so let's talk about some of those satellites, including the one that's already up there. You've chosen specifically, again, to be in GEO and to have these smaller satellites that provide internet to folks in specific regions. Yes. Why that, of all the different functionalities that satellites can offer? And then also, just like tell me a little bit more about this question of just how many people on Earth actually don't have access to internet. So, to be clear, I think this is the most valuable thing that we can do in space, right? There are a lot of things you can only do in space, just right. from having this vantage point of being that high yeah. and looking down and seeing, you know, a good chunk of the earth or, mm-hmm. you know, basically this, this whole earth view, but getting people connected is just of such enormous value. It really changes people's lives. Yeah. Being able to have access to healthcare information, being able to get education, educate themselves. When you get access to the internet, you're getting access to the sum total of the world's knowledge yeah. in one, you know, it doesn't get lost now in the, you know, the Instagram <laughs> era, but if you had nothing and no access to the internet and you were just a smart, capable person who wanted to, you know, improve your life, having then that door opened, suddenly having access to the entire world's knowledge on any topic you could imagine, mm-hmm. right? I mean, talk about a massive enabler for yeah. people to improve their lives, you know, economic growth, all the rest, it's a huge deal. I think the place where we're at with connectivity today around the world, I think we have essentially reached the people we're going to reach with fiber. Laying fiber is enormously expensive and difficult, right? In, in a lot of countries, it's it's done by trenching. You know, there's just the labor costs of doing that. And then there's all these other, you know, complicating factors, rights of way, like you're going through someone's land. And especially in a world where people are mobile first, right, it's even more challenging because what you really want is you want cell towers just everywhere, right? Because people want connectivity everywhere they're going to go all the time. Yeah. A lot of the challenge with cell towers and providing people with cellular connectivity is connecting that cell tower to the internet. It's actually not building the cell tower. Building a cell tower is just a metal tower and there's some electronics on it that do the job of connecting to your cell phone. Mm -hmm. But those electronics have been mass produced to the largest scale you can imagine, right? I mean, think about how many cell towers there are around the world. Building the cell tower is relatively cheap compared to the value it's going to create of getting those people in that area connected, Mm -hmm. right? Very cheap. That's what we call the backhaul problem. And so that is what we realized was this key problem to go and solve. And so we have found a set of customers in countries around the world that are either telcos who, you know, these telcos that build these cell towers and operate these networks or service providers for those telcos who, you know, help them manage their cell towers that basically are buying this capacity in large quantities. So they want big pipes of dedicated connections. And these are big sort of trunk lines to connect these cell towers to the Internet. So, you know, it's not just the cell towers, right? It's also enterprise customers who need connectivity for anything from that could be like hospitals and schools to mining installations Mm -hmm. or, you know, things like oil and gas or, you know, there's sort of a whole gamut there. Obviously, you put up a bunch of capacity, but you're charging these very high prices where it just doesn't make any sense. No one's going to buy it. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, if you put it up at a low enough price, 
then the demand becomes almost effectively unlimited. I mean, at a low enough price point, people will consume all the internet bandwidth that is available and then, you know, come back asking for more. Yeah. And I think we are there. I you think, think the economics are there. Correct. Yes. With the satellites that we have designed and begun building, I think we are at that inflection point, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we'll continue to get the price down and even get some number of percentage of the unconnected population of the world online. And we'll get up to scale because we're going to massively scale what we're doing and build hundreds of these satellites. We'll be able to get that economies of scale and get those prices down even lower and get even more people. So people used to talk about the other 3 billion that don't have access to the internet when, you know, the internet was first really taking off. Now it's the other 4 billion. The problem actually got worse. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yes. How is that possible? It doesn't seem right. It seems actually quite astounding that somehow we've not only failed to solve the problem, the problem actually got worse over time, not better. There's a limit to where it makes sense to run fiber or it's even physically possible to run fiber. Mm -hmm. You know, very remote places or out on islands, deserts. And that's, I mean, that's a very sizable percentage of, of planet Earth. So those populations have been growing over time, but we have failed to, you know, expand the reach of our fiber networks to meet that. So, yeah, I think it is on us in the space industry to solve this problem. I do not see any other means solving it. I mean, you know, people have looked at like balloons and, you know, drones that stay up for days at a time and are trying to beam down the internet. And those things are just pretty tough. There's high operations costs of, Mm -hmm. you know, these things that, you know, you have to like deal with the weather and they have to be refueled and you bring them down and, you know, you manage this giant sort of fleet of things. They could follow this guy and, you know, follow somebody's house. There's possibly some solution there that could work. I would love to see it, but I really do think it's on us in the space business to solve this problem. And, you know, we have to figure out how to do that. We're talking about one of the world's most epic problems here. So it's on the order of scale of solving the world's energy problems, solving the world's food problems. Mm -hmm. It's just going to take a basket of solutions to be able to solve. Yeah. Maybe you can share a little bit more about who the buyers are on the other side, right? Because all of these companies that are shipping satellites into orbit, that costs a lot of money. And to recoup that money to really have a functional business, because we're no longer talking about the government. Yeah. So the ultimate end users are individual people with their cell phone data plan, right? But in our case, we're not going all the way direct to those consumers, right? We're we're selling to enterprises, we're B2B. So we are selling to either telcos or these service providers who manage cell towers Mm -hmm. and provide connectivity. That's sort of like a course of customers. And then there's actually quite a few others. I mean, if you can get things low enough cost, which I, I think that we have, it gets to the point where a, a single satellite or really the network that you can build and deploy with that satellite is affordable to a you know Fortune 500 company or even a Fortune 2000 company. There's a huge world of connectivity needs that I think you know exists out beyond that. One of the big ones that we haven't talked about yet is in-flight Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. So two of our satellites that we're launching on our next launch at the end of this year. Yeah are basically just totally dedicated to boosting in-flight Wi-Fi capacity over the U.S. Can you explain why is in-flight Wi-Fi so bad today? I almost can't. I mean, it's (laughs) like it doesn't make sense in that 
We know that everyone knows the demand is there. It's not a surprise that people want to have broadband internet mm-hmm. on an airplane. And yet somehow, you know, there's been this market failure where the suppliers of capacity mm-hmm. of the satellite capacity have failed to put up enough satellites. You know, I'm talking about the traditional large geo satellites. Yeah. They have failed to put up enough of those satellites to meet that demand. Okay. And I honestly, I am not sure how that happened. To us, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. We've seen the demand is so massive. You know, there's so much value being created there, so much money to be made that we could launch, you know, dozens of our satellites and just do input wide wide, right? And it's actually a small part of our business today, but it is a, you know, a huge demand. Okay. So you kind of talked about the internet connectivity side of things, but there's also some government buyers, right, of these satellites and their functionality. So what is the government looking for in, in those cases? Anyone in our position, a company doing new technology for aerospace, almost by definition, there are national security implications of, of mm-hmm. what we do. There's almost always going to be this point where the U.S. government comes in, you know, sort of knocks on your door and is like, hey, what are you doing over there? We have had, so this is for us, in Space Force, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the U.S. military right. saying, hey, there's real applications here for U.S. national security. Can we talk about this? Like a, a very high-ranking general will, you know, ask for a meeting and say, hey, I heard from my team, from my staff, about some of the things you guys are doing. They're very excited about it. You know, so, you know, tell me more. We have been having a lot of this conversation, especially as we've seen, you know, these tensions ratcheting up around the world, right? And then really this sort of dam broke open when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? That was a big moment for us to say, okay, this is really important and we should really start to put some focus on this. Mm -hmm. What they're looking for is the same as I think anybody else. They need reliable communications. Mm -hmm. They need that. And there's many different flavors of that. They're out operating in remote places, the Navy, when they're out at sea, it's really across the board. Mm-hmm. They need broadband comps, right? And to make sure they have that reliably, they want that through multiple channels, multiple paths, and ideally get everything set up mm-hmm. so that they could just seamlessly switch between different things. You know, no different than your cell phone, right. switching between your home Wi-Fi and then switching the cell tower when you leave your house, right? Yeah. In Geo, and I think what's different in our case is we can do this with small satellites. It's more of the swarm approach. So with the traditional big geosatellites, cost a billion dollars. And geostationary, you know, you can divide up the world by region. And over, you know, a given region that we might care about, Asia, for example, there might only be a handful of these satellites that we're totally dependent on. Yeah. Where it would be devastating if those satellites were all taken out mm-hmm. at the start of a conflict. And is that the magnitude we're really talking about over Asia? We're talking about like 10, 100? I don't know. In geo, I mean, for any given type of capability, it could easily be, you know, just a couple. Certainly less than 10. A few. Yeah, just a few. Wow. So, you know, the military communication satellites, I think there's roughly a dozen that cover the whole world. So they're spread around the whole world. Where Space Force got excited about, I think, our, you know, ability to add value here is in taking this swarm approach up into that higher orbit. Mm -hmm. You know, deploying a large number of small satellites that can provide all kinds of communications capability and be, you know, more scattered around, be more maneuverable. The invasion of Ukraine by Russia was a big moment Mm -hmm. for, I think, all of U.S. national security. But it was a huge deal on the space side of things because 
Ukraine was using a large geosatellite for a lot of its communications. It's a satellite called KASAT over Europe. It's a commercial satellite. It's being managed by a U.S.-based you know, commercial company. Mm-hmm. And the Russians took out that satellite on day one of the invasion with a massive cyber attack. And just in one fell swoop, cut off comms across, you know, almost all of Ukraine. Because mm-hmm. they've been very heavily reliant on just this one satellite. Yeah. And so the Russians, I mean, they really had this planned out, you know, to a T. I mean, they had it, they had everything was ready to go. It's like they just press one button and unleash these, you know, viruses and they and they basically they crippled the satellite. So this is, you know, it's no longer this theoretical thing of like, yeah. are these satellites important? Will our adversaries see them as targets or, or take action against them? It's like, no, we just saw a conflict and that's yeah. exactly what they did on day one was take out one of the satellites. And when you say take out, is that a permanent loss of that satellite? Does it like come back online? In this case, they actually bricked all of the modems that were talking to the satellite on the ground. Okay. I believe the satellite itself was left still operational. But by bricking the modems, it basically made it so that, you know, in order to get the modems up and running again, I think some of them may have been actually permanently damaged. For others, they had to go modem by modem with a thumb drive and, you know, basically put in a software update to update the software yeah. to get it running again. And, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of these modems across. For some reason, didn't even dawn on me that these attacks on these very critical pieces of infrastructure would come through a cyber attack. I mean, it seems obvious now yeah. that you said it, but I was imagining, like, you know, actually targeting the satellite in orbit. That is also of concern, yes. The thing to remember about a lot of these large geo assets is they're built to last for decades. Yes. And so some of them have been up there that were still up that were built with 20 year old technology. And so they may have all kinds of vulnerabilities, right? We've since figured out fixes on new satellites, but this old model of putting up a satellite is going to last for 20 years. Yeah. It's very concerning. Whereas, you know, like we have absolutely some of the best, you know, security engineers that it is possible to find them anywhere in Silicon Valley and have, you know, access mm-hmm. to literally the world's top talent on cybersecurity. We are folding in all of the latest, you know, findings and approaches on our cybersecurity side. But, you know, it is concerning these big satellites have been up there for, you know, two decades, right? And whether yeah. or not they're going to have vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's almost like you're saying the lack of iteration is a national security threat. 100%. Yes. Everything else that we use today across, you know, our lives, both yeah. in business and at home, has gotten smaller and smaller and, you know, faster and faster refresh the technology, right? It's kind of a great point because you imagine around the same time as some of these satellites went out, that's when you had computers the size of a room. And now we have computers the size of our phones that fit in our pocket. Satellites are getting bigger. We're actually having more people with no internet. That's an interesting <laughs> phenomena happening over this period. Yes, a lot of problems to solve, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe yes. one other angle during, let's just say, the last decade that I'd love to hear you elaborate on. What have you seen change in the regulatory landscape? Yeah, I mean, so the biggest thing to be concerned about is orbital debris, right? Mm-hmm. And that is definitely a real concern, right? It's a classic tragedy of the commons. It's something yep. that, you know, all countries have a stake in. Yes. And I think everyone 
feels the same way about it, that if you create a bunch of orbital debris in space, it's just a bad day for everyone, mm-hmm. right? And it could take us decades to, to clean up and, and get out of. So that is definitely a big concern. It is an area where, you know, the United States needs to hopefully lead and also bring other countries along with us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've seen some great progress on that front and it is starting to become important yeah especially as things are getting cheaper there are more satellites going up on that note maybe we can talk just zoom out a little bit in terms of this satellite economy but really just all of the infrastructure being built for space and maybe you could just share a little bit more about what you're excited about when it comes to like let's say the next 5 10 20 years people are talking about like refueling in space like reusable rockets are talking about tourism they're talking about mining asteroids. Like there's all of these kind of disparate ideas coming about that are all, quite frankly, at the very least, interesting. What gets you excited and, and what do you think maybe people are overlooking as potential in this industry? I would say that, you know, we don't know yet where these other sources of value are going to be. Is asteroid mining going to be a massive business opportunity? I think we're, we're still figuring that out. There's talk of both government programs and private programs to put people back on the moon. Well, if we're going to do that, whether it's government or private, any kind of expedition of that type or setting up a lunar base is just going to need all kinds of other you know, pieces of the sort of overall economy and infrastructure, right? People are going to be operating on the lunar surface. You're going to need communications infrastructure. That's something we've thought about and, and looked at a little bit. How would we take our satellites that are designed for, you know, these higher orbits and provide a similar type of connectivity on the lunar surface that we are on their surface. It's a very, it's a very cool application. The moon will need its own GPS system. You're on the lunar surface. You want to know where you are. Same thing as on the earth. You want to be able to just pull up, you know, Google maps, (laughs) (laughs) navigate back to your lunar base, right? We're going to need all kinds of transport of cargo, you know, fuel, food, water, all of these things we're going to need. Cargo ships, probably a variety of sizes and types that can take things either, you know, to lunar orbit or up and down from the lunar surface. Yeah. And then there's just all, you know, all the things you can imagine around, around supporting people, which I think is, you know, that is something, that's just something we are going to do, right? There's a ton of, of opportunity for companies to go and, and sort of, you know, carve out a specific part of that ecosystem and be really, really good at you know, doing that specific thing as a service or building that component. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity and maybe to close things off because we do have a lot of people who are current founders or maybe some of these future founders carving out some slice of that market. We'd just love to hear any war stories, any true challenges that you have faced or are currently facing with Astronus, because as we've talked about, building in space is just inherently hard. You know, I realized the other day, you know, these once in a generation black swan events, you know, and in, in, in some ways, everybody who starts a company that's going to have any kind of staying power is going to have to deal with one of those. Yes. We have had to deal with one per year. So if, you know, some, per like year? A, oh, there was COVID. There was the invasion of Ukraine, so yeah. new land war in Asia. Yeah. There's been this stream of black swan events. So it is, yeah, it has not been easy. I think, COVID was certainly the most challenging as a as a hardware company. There was a period there of a couple of weeks where employees could not go into the office. Mm-hmm. Well, we actually ended up having a determination 
by Space Force, a general at Space Force, determined that we are part of the U.S. national critical infrastructure okay. and our ability to put up these communication satellites and help provide that you know, broadband infrastructure, whether that be at home or, mm-hmm. or abroad. And with that piece of paper, we were able to reopen the office. So thankfully, we were able to reopen fairly quickly. But there was a period of time there where all the hardware of the company divided up to individual engineers, mm-hmm. you know, where they basically took home, you know, a specific piece of hardware yeah. to go and work on it. And so, you know, we had engineers literally working in their in their garage on space hardware that, you know, was supposed to like, you know, setting up like a equivalent of a, of a mini clean room that was supposed to be built in our facility. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you for everything that you and the team have been building. It's so cool. Like I said, I watched some of those videos and I was like, oh my gosh, like we should be celebrating this stuff. Like these are like monumentous moments, not just astronomers, but just sending this stuff up to to orbit so far away and doing it regularly now and doing it in a way where we're, we're getting new functionality. It's, it's exciting. It really is. Yeah, it is a new golden age of space for sure. If you like this episode, if you made it this far, help us grow the show. Share with a friend or if you're feeling really ambitious, you can leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com slash A16Z. You know, candidly, producing a podcast can sometimes feel like you're just talking into a void. And so if you did like this episode, if you liked any of our episodes, please let us know. We'll see you next time.